the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. And this evening, I want to teach a little bit about some questions and answers on Bible prophecy. Luke chapter 21, beginning with verse number 1. And he looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow casting in there two mites. And he said, of a truth, I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast into the offerings of God. But she of her penury, of her lack, of her poverty, hath cast in all the living that she had. And as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful gifts, stones, he said, as for these things, which you behold, the days will come in which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Verse 7. And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be, and what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? And questions and answers on Bible prophecy. Let's pray. Father, again, we're grateful to have a chance to look into the word of God. For the next few moments, as we share your word, we pray you give us all ears here. Let our lives be changed by learning about the season and the time that we're living in. We love you and we honor you and praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen. Chapter 20 of the Gospel of Luke tells us in the first verse that Jesus is in the temple teaching the people and preaching the gospel. And it's there that the chief priests and the scribes come and to begin to investigate some of the things that he is saying to the people. Quite naturally, they're asking him questions, trying to entrap him, and he even has questions for them. He says, tell me, the baptism of John, was it of men or was it of God? Well, the people were afraid to say it was of men because, as the scripture says, they were thinking that they would be stoned. Jesus gives them a parable about a man that owned a vineyard and sent servant after servant whom the workers beat. Finally, he sent his son whom the workers killed. Then they realized that in that parable, Jesus was speaking against the chief priests and the scribes. So by the time you come to the end of the chapter, the Lord says of the scribes in verse 46 and 47, they desire prominence and to be exalted, to be noticed and observed. He said they devour widows' houses, and for a show, they pray very long prayers. And it's right about that time that he's sitting in the treasury part of the temple where people bring their gifts and their offerings in. They didn't pass a plate. It was a specific place that was set up where people would come in and drop in their monies. They had to do this in accordance with their relationship with God. And the Lord noticed a very poor woman. And I'm sure he knew she was poor, if not by the word of knowledge, certainly by observation. And this woman... I don't know how she did it, what her countenance was like, but when she cast in that little bit of money, the Lord knew this woman just gave everything that she had. 
And he said, she has given more than everybody else. Because when it comes to giving, God not only looks at what we give, but he pays attention sometimes to what we keep back. This woman gave until it hurt her. But maybe it's wrong to say it hurt her. She gave to the point where she had nothing left, but she was happy to give to God. Whereas other people very often tip God and act as though they're doing something special for the Lord. Jesus then gets his disciples and they begin to make their way outside of the temple. And the Lord, Lord is, is, is heading down that hill. And I'm sure the disciples, these boys are from Galilee, they said, Lord, isn't the temple marvelous? Herod's been working on it for some four decades. Got a long way to go, but it's beautiful. Look at how marvelous the stones are. And Jesus looks at his disciples and said, I'm telling you right now, there's coming a point in time where this whole thing is going to be torn down. And there will not be one stone on top of the other. These boys were from Galilee. And to be in a place where they have a facility like this in Jerusalem had to be somewhat mesmerizing to them. I don't know how often they came to Jerusalem. Maybe they've been coming since they were little kids. But I'm sure the fact that the temple was beautiful, they couldn't wait to see it on each occasion. I guess we could parallel it with those that years ago, before there was a lot of transportation with vehicles, grew up in these small towns. And anytime they had an opportunity to go to Lincoln or Omaha, see skyscraping buildings, there was something to behold. Little kids would stand in the back seat of the car and just look at the beauty of all of that. And that is how these disciples were were acting, and when the Lord said this whole thing is going to come to nothing, that's when they started the questions because the wheels were turning. If something like this, if something as, as meticulously prepared as this temple is going to be destroyed, when is it going to happen? What's going to be the sign that these things are coming to pass and that this is going to be the end of the world? Now the questions they ask are questions that people ask all the time. And over and over again, you wonder sometimes what it is about all of this that really grabs people. Well, here's the first question. What is it that intrigues people about Bible prophecy? Doesn't matter whether people believe in a rapture or don't believe in the trib or mid-trib or post-trib or a literal millennium or don't believe in a millennium. Everybody, in some shape, form, or fashion, is interested in Bible prophecy. We want to know about the time frame in which we live. We want to understand how to interpret the signs of the time in which we live because no one wants to be ignorant about what is taking place during the season in which we're presently living. How do we interpret the signs? I'm going to give you an, a, an illustration of how I know people are fascinated with this. Look at the different prophecy conferences that are around the world. Over and over again, people travel a long ways and they will sit sometimes for 12 hours to listen to someone teach what's up on a chart and explain in the last days. A few years ago, you'll remember there were people that were talking a lot about the blood moons. And apparently there were several within a year. And I remember uh, being on uh, Christian television and was being interviewed off camera. They, they asked me, in between the, the uh, live session, they said, now, do you mind if we ask you about uh, so-and-so's book? He just wrote a book called Four Blood Moons, and it's really popular, and he's talking about this. They said, do you mind if we ask you about that? I said, I prefer you didn't because I don't have anything favorable to say about it. 
And they said, well, why? So inside of two minutes, I basically explained to them that it really doesn't matter whether there are four or 40 or 400 blood moons in a year. There's nothing in the scripture that says any of these kinds of phenomena have anything to do with Israel or anything to do with prophetic things taking place here on the earth. But I said, I will tell you this, though. The Bible does speak in Joel chapter 2 of a time where the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon shall be turned to blood. And Peter even picked it up on the day of Pentecost. Thousands of people listening to him. He said, these folks are not drunk like you suppose just because they're speaking other languages. He said, the power of God has come upon him. And then he quotes Joel and said, in the last days, he pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Old men would see dreams. Young people would do this. Then he said, in the latter days, then he said, then the, the moon will be turned to blood and the sun will be turned to darkness. Now, Revelation 6, I believe verse 12, is when they open up the sixth seal that's the last day of the great tribulation, and that is when there's an earthquake and when there is a sitting situation where you have the, the blood moon or something like that. So I told them very quickly, I said, the only blood moon, if we want to call it that, the only blood moon that matters to me is the one that will occur on the final day of the great tribulation. And I said, even then, I won't be here for it. I will have been called away. What is it that intrigues people about Bible prophecy? They want to understand what's taking place. What, do the, what does the election, if the election has anything to do with the end times, what does it have to do with the end times? What about what's going on in the Middle East? These questions are everywhere. And whenever you look into the scripture and you think about these things, you're wondering, could it all be connected? I can tell you this right now. Everything that's taking place on this earth somehow has something to do with prophecy, because from Genesis 3 to the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, it's all prophetic. He said, how can you say that? Well, the Lord said to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will, that's future tense, you will die. That's prophecy. People have been dying ever since. As long as people are being buried, as long as eulogies are being delivered, a prophecy is being fulfilled. The scripture says that in that, that final end of the age, John looks up and he sees New Jerusalem descending out of heaven like a bride. One day that's going to occur. But in order for that city to descend, there's got to be people to populate that city. So the whole point of telling folks about Jesus so that we'll have a greater population when that city occurs. So the more people get saved, the more people become citizens of the kingdom. Every time somebody becomes a Christian, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. That, that's what it is. Here's another question. When will the Lord return? Let's go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. When will the Lord Jesus Christ return? That's a big question. Some years ago, there were billboards in Omaha. And a gentleman was saying that the Lord was going to return on such and such day in May of that year. And of course, here we are. Back in the 80s, you'll remember the book that was popular, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. Harold Camping, who's now dead, he wrote a book one time explaining why the Lord was going to come back on such and such day. I, I forget what day exactly, but hypothetically, I'll just say it was September so-and-so, 1991. Well, he missed it, obviously, 
The Lord didn't come back. And so after that book became a bestseller and Christians had bought that thing, he came back and he said, you know what? I missed God. I was off by a year. And he wrote another book and two became a bestseller. Now, I can't tell you the number of times people around the world have gathered in parks and out in the wilderness having sold all of their property and all of their goods, believing that on a certain evening the Lord was going to return at midnight. These people stay up all night anxiously waiting for the Lord to return. And the next morning after they've fallen asleep and they've waken up, they realize the Lord hadn't come. But I'm going to tell you when, when he's coming right here. Matthew 24, look at verse number 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When its branch is yet tender and put it forth as leaves, you know the summer is nigh. So likewise, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the door. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Some people take this verse to mean that since the disciples and other people passed away, that the scripture has lied. That's not what it's saying at all. All of the preceding events that are mentioned in this chapter, it's speaking about the generation that lives during these events will not pass away. Verse 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knows no man, know not the angels of heaven, but who? My father only. Anytime you ever hear a human being say, I can tell you when the Lord is going to return, what day, what hour, don't believe. Scripture says nobody knows, only the father. Look at verse Number 44, therefore be ye also ready for in such an hour as you think not the son of man cometh. I remember one time on TBN, Shambach was being interviewed and I think it was Paul Crouch and they were talking about prophecy and Shambach said, Paul, I can tell you right now the very hour Jesus is coming back. And of course, Paul starts sweating bullets. I mean, live television and he's like, oh, my goodness, what kind of heresy is he about to bring us into? And Shambach finally said, don't you want to know? And, and, and Paul, he finally relented and said, well, please go ahead and, and tell me. And Shambach said, he's coming back in the hour that you think not. Well, that's true. Now, for us that are Christians, the Bible says we look for the return of the Lord. That's in the book of Hebrews. We look for him to return again a second time without sin unto salvation. But the sinners of this world, the people outside the kingdom of God, they don't believe in the Lord's return. They don't believe he ever came in the first place, many of them. And they certainly don't believe that he's going to be a judge one day. So in that hour that they're not even considering it. That's why the Lord said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the last days. They were marrying, eating, drinking given themselves in marriage, and they were not thinking of the return of the Lord. Here's another question. What is the role of the church in the end time? Let's go to Acts chapter 15. What is the role of the church of Jesus Christ in the last days in preparation for the return of the Lord? Now let me give you some background. In this chapter, Paul and Barnabas have just returned from a missionary journey. And they're explaining about the miracles that have taken place, the power of God that's been revealed. And you can see it in verse 12. All the multitude kept silent and 
and gave heed to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. So you can imagine that the church there, listening to the report, they were excited about it. And it's like when anybody goes on a missionary trip or journey, the missionary stands before a congregation to explain what has occurred during his last trip. People are happy. And when I tell stories, different meetings in Kenya or different meetings in, in places, uh, folks' eyes sometimes light up because it's like, you mean to tell me that God is still so big and so mighty and so strong that he's doing that. So Paul is saying, look, we were over in Lystra. We were preaching the gospel. I saw that a man had faith and it was growing in his heart. And so I said to him, stand up on your feet. And the man jumped up and was made whole. And the people were like, wow. So as they told story after story about that, James, in verse 13, he wants to speak. It says, James answered, and he said, Men, brethren, listen to me. Simeon has declared how God first did visit the Gentiles, or the nations, to take out of them a people for his name. Now, who is Simeon? Simon Peter. And when did this happen? Remember in Acts chapter 10, the scripture says that Cornelius was a very nice man, and he gave a lot of money to charity. And in giving money to charity, the scripture says an angel appeared to him and said, all of your giving has come into the presence of God, but God wants you to send a servant to a particular house, and there will be a man by the name of Peter, and you're to send for him and bring him back here to your home. So the servant made the long trek as he was on his way there. When he got close to the house, Peter was up on the rooftop praying. Lunch was being prepared in the house, and as he was praying, Peter saw a sheet coming down out of the heavens. On the sheet was all kinds of food that the Old Testament law said he could not eat. Swine, lobster, who knows what else. And he heard a voice that said, Peter, get up and eat. And Peter said, I can't, Lord. We can't eat this kind of stuff. And the Lord said, do not call unclean what I have cleansed. P Peter, he didn't quite understand. He heard that voice again several times. Finally, the sheet was taken back up to heaven, and by the time he came out of the vision, there's a voice saying, Peter, there's somebody down here to see you. And when Peter went downstairs, the man said, my master, my employer is an Italian gentleman by the name of Cornelius. He's in the military, and his family is gathered at his house waiting on you for me to bring you back for you to tell them some kind of information. Peter makes the trip with the servant, goes back to the house. Not only is Cornelius there with his family, but he has his extended family and his friends. Peter stands up and preaches the gospel. The people believe and are saved. The Spirit of God falls upon, upon them. They begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, and they prophesied. And suddenly, uh, James, in this story here, he's using Simon Peter's instance with the Italian people as an occasion to explain that God has taken out his name amongst the nations. Now, he wasn't even in Italy. This occurred right there in Israel. So that tells you sometimes God can bring the nations right there to your front door and you never even have to leave your country. You take a, a town like this, you can walk out to the cemetery. I did this one time with teenagers in Red Cloud. Just, just for a youth meeting. I, I went out to a cemetery with them. I said, we're going on a missions trip. And when we went to the cemetery, I knew they'd been raised there, so they would know a lot of the names. We were walking through, 
and I was pointing at names on the headstone. I said, that, that family right there, tell me everything you know about that family. They just started talking. I said, what's their background? They said, Swedish. We went to the next headstone. I said, tell me about this person right here. Tell me the background. They start talking. I said, where are they from? He said, these folks are German. Went to the next place. I said, tell me all about this person here. Where are they from? He said, that, that was one of the few or Norwegian people that we had around here. So we went through that and went through about 20 different backgrounds or ethnicities there in the cemetery. And I said to them, I said, you don't have to even go overseas to go around the world and meet people of different nationalities. All you have to do is look at your neighbors and witness and minister across the fence. Well, this is what James understood. He said what's going on with Simon and what's taking place with Paul and Barnabas, he, he quickly used the Rolodex in his mind and pulled a scripture out of Amos chapter number 9. And this is what we have here in verse number 15. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David which is fallen down and I will build again its ruins and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the nations upon whom my name is called. Saith the Lord who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the age. From the beginning of the world. So what happened in Amos chapter 9? Amos had prophesied to the people that because of Israel's sins, they were going into captivity, and they did. Amos went so far as to prophesy that they were going in, into captivity, but one day they were going to come out of captivity and never go into captivity or be uprooted from the land again. Well, the Assyrian Empire uprooted the Israelites, went into captivity, they came back home. The Babylonian Empire uprooted the Israelites. They went into captivity. Seventy years later, they came back home. The Romans, Luke chapter 21 says, as Jesus prophesied, he said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, know that the time is near. And surely, the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem, and thousands of Israelites went into captivity all around the world, and there they remained until May of 1948. And now that they've been replanted into the land, at the end of the book of Amos, it says, when I bring you back home, you will not be plucked out of the land again. That means the Israelites are in the land now to stay. Doesn't matter what the Iranians want or the Arabs want. It doesn't matter if all of America turns against Israel. They've got a friend in God because it's prophecy for them to go back into the land and for them to stay. But Amos also said, the tabernacle of David is going to be rebuilt. So James, when he hears the stories of Paul and Barnabas and of what Simeon is doing, he realizes this is the reestablishment of the tabernacle of David. The question again is, what is the role of the church in the end time? How was that the establishment of David's tabernacle? I'll tell you, David's tabernacle. The tent of David, the house of David. Remember, remember the prophecies given to David that his seed would always occupy the throne. His kingdom would continue and expand and get bigger and bigger. So the, the family of David, the tribe of David, the house of David. But now we have the son of David. 
And people that become followers of the son of David become his brethren, his kin. We become members of the house of David. So wherever the name of Jesus Christ is proclaimed and people believe upon that name, they themselves become members of the house of David. And David's tabernacle is erected and James saw it. He said this is taking place all around the world. So even right now here in Hebron and when we're in Red Cloud, and when we're in friend and when we travel different places and minister the word of God, as well as thousands of other churches across America, as long as Jesus name is being proclaimed and embraced. It's another tent peg in the tent of David being established. What's the role of the church in the last days to help make David's tent bigger and bigger? What's the point of that? The more people who become Christian the more people to help populate the earth during the millennium and the more people go to New Jerusalem. Ezekiel 34 and 24 and Ezekiel 37 and 24 says David will reign again. Even Hosea 3 and 5 says that. David will reign again. So when Jesus reigns during the millennium, David will reign with him and we'll be right there part of Folks, I'm telling you, whenever we give towards missions, whether it's something local, regional, statewide, national, or international, it's fulfillment of prophecy. When you witness on your job, when you send me to go and witness on your behalf, it's still a fulfillment of prophecy. What's another question? Is there a difference between the rapture and the return of the Lord to reign? On this earth. Yes. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians. New Testament. 1 Thessalonians. It's before Timothy. If by chance. You somehow see. The book of Exodus. You're going in the wrong direction. 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 4. Here's the question. Is there a difference between. The rapture. And the return of the Lord to reign. First, the rapture. But I would not have you, verse 13, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them who are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others who have no hope. That's 1 Thessalonians 4.13. That means that when we lose a loved one, someone who knows God, we cry because... We've lost someone very close to us. But we don't grieve like people who have lost someone who died without Christ and the possibility exists that you may never see them again. He said we don't grieve as a hopeless people. Look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we do Even so them also who sleep in Jesus or have died in Christ, will God bring with him? With him from where? From heaven. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, that means he's coming, shall not prevent or precede them who are asleep or who have died. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. That means everyone who has died in Christ and gone to heaven, including the wonderful people that passed away under the old covenant, 
Because we know that people under the old covenant that followed God went to heaven because Jesus said, blessed are those that sit down in the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we know folks have gone to heaven from the old covenant. Elijah in the chariot, it swept him away and carried him, as the scripture says, to heaven. Scripture says Enoch walked with God and then he disappeared. Where did he go? He was translated to heaven. So we understand that people went to heaven. But one day... The Lord Jesus is going to return, and according to 1 Corinthians 15, all of the Christians that populate heaven, we're all going to come back with him, and, and supernaturally, miraculously, it says those spirits are going to re-enter the grave sites where they were buried, and for some reason or another, the mortality is going to put on immortality. It's all going to be reconstituted and come back. And in a, a miraculous moment, everything is going to change. And you're going to get a glorified, miraculous body. Now, you say, why do you need that when you've already been in heaven and you already had a spiritual body? I don't know. I'm just telling what 1 Corinthians 15 says. It's going to happen. You say, well, what about the people who were swallowed by fish in the ocean and the people whose bodies burned in a fire, to dust, folks that were cremated, how are they going to come back together? Folks, let me tell you, the God in the beginning who started with nothing and made everything is able to do it again. He's able to do it again. There's not a molecule, not an atom where he doesn't know where it is, and he that re made man the first time can reconstitute man and make him all over one more time. That, that's not a problem at all. But, but here's the thing. Verse 17 then says, we who are alive, that's folks that are still alive on planet earth when this occurs and the dead in Christ rise up, they'll be caught up together with them in the clouds. To meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now people ask me sometimes, is the word rapture in the Bible? The word rapture means to snatch, to seize, to catch away. And I say it depends on what Bible you read. You read it in the English here, it says caught up. You read it in the Greek, it's a different word. If you get a Latin Bible and look at this verse, when it says caught up, it has the word rapturous. So it's in the Bible, it just depends on what language you're reading the Bible in. Our English word comes from the Latin word. It simply means people are going to be seized. The Lord is going to come for his bride at some appointed time. And the scripture says... He's not coming back to the earth. He says, we're going to be caught up in the clouds to meet him in the air. That's where the reunion is going to take place, in the air, supernaturally, miraculously. So what's the difference between the rapture and the return of the Lord to the earth to reign? The rapture, Jesus comes back into the atmosphere, but he doesn't come back to planet earth, but he's up in the atmosphere. You say, well, if he's up in the atmosphere, what about the people on the other side of the earth? How are they going to know to, to come up? I mean, folks, look, God's a big God. I mean, I mean, everybody, everybody's going to know where to go, okay? Even, even geese know where to go when one's flying overhead. Everybody else knows how to gather with the main one, so it's not going to be difficult at all. When the cry is made, all of those in the body are going to be gathered to him. So the rapture is us being called away. We well, say, what is the return of the Lord to reign? Look at First Thessalonians, excuse me. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, and notice verse number 8. 
And then shall that wicked one be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. The brightness of his coming. See, when he came in the rapture, he wasn't coming to destroy anything. But when he returns, he's going to return at the end of a period of seven years and he, with the spirit of his mouth. Because this, this goes with Revelation 19.15. And out of the spirit of his mouth, when he comes riding back on that beautiful horse and the saints are with him, it says that he's going to destroy the Antichrist. And the Bible says he's going to put the devil in the pit, the bottomless pit, and he's going to be there for a thousand years as the Lord reigns here on planet Earth. And during that millennium, that'll be the period when it'll be so nice that, that you folks who, who don't like snakes and are afraid of them, they won't bother you so much. Yeah. And that's when they talk about the, the lions and the lambs laying down together, not having much of a problem at all. And, and that would be because of that period of time in the millennium. When the Lord returns, he comes back to the earth. Zechariah says he goes to the Mount of Olives. That big mountain splits in half, and the Lord sets up his kingdom right there in Jerusalem where he and David, remember Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37, where they reign together, and the book of Revelation says, we shall all be priests unto God. So we have ministries during that millennium period. We will reign, because even Jesus said during that time frame, that we will be equal to the angels. There won't be any marriage when we get on the other side, even in heaven, and, and things like that. So here is the next question there, number five. Who is the Antichrist. Wow. Yeah, some, 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 some people might think it's their mother-in-law, but that's not right. That, that, that's not right. I, I had somebody, somebody tell me a couple of weeks ago, they, they said to me during the, the election period, they said, now, there's no way on this earth I'm voting for Donald Trump. They said, I'm not voting for Donald Trump. said, I'm telling you Donald Trump is the Antichrist. I said in response, without even thinking, I just spontaneously said, well, if Donald Trump is the Antichrist, then who is the lady then, the woman riding the beast? Well, I don't think the lady liked when I said that. She didn't look too happy when I made that statement. But, but here's the point. You can make dispersion remarks about politicians and things like that, but that doesn't have anything to do with this book here. When someone asks the question, who is the Antichrist, the, the best thing to tell them is nobody knows. Nobody knows. We're already in 2 Thessalonians. Look at verse number 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there comes a falling away. And the man of sin, that's the Antichrist. That's just another way of describing it. The man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. There's another way of describing it who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he is, he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That all is corroborated in the book of Daniel, in chapter 11, and even parts of chapter 8 and 9. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things, and now ye know what letteth or restraineth, that he might be revealed in this time. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now hinders, let it, will continue to hinder till he be taken out of the way. And then shall the wicked one be revealed. So the Antichrist cannot be revealed until whatever 
is restraining this mystery of iniquity from fully manifesting is taken out of the way. So who's got to be removed before the Antichrist manifests? We do. Because the period of the Great Tribulation is called, in Revelation 6, the last two verses, the wrath of the Lamb of God. God is so unhappy and displeased with the nations of the world and with how Israel has conducted uh, himself that, that the wrath is going to be poured out. Now here's what you need to know. Romans 5 and 9 and 1 Thessalonians 5 and 9 both say, we as Christians have been delivered from the wrath to come. That means the Antichrist cannot be revealed until the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is removed. Now, Dr. Hilton Sutton he used to send me stuff all the time asking me to read it or, or look at it, a video, and then look at some Hebrew or Greek word or something like that, that that somebody was teaching on, and then he wanted some input. But on this one occasion, he sent me a book, and this book was written by a very prominent prophecy teacher here in America. And in this book, this prophecy teacher, <coughs> excuse me, this prophecy teacher said that he knows who the Antichrist is, and this book is going to identify. Now, on the interviews, he never told anybody in the book uh, who, who the Antichrist was identified as in the book, so everybody would buy the book, and they were buying the book everywhere. I mean, everywhere I went, this book was showing up. And so I read the book, and the book identified the Antichrist as the former king of Jordan, Hussein, his brother, Hassan, identified the Antichrist as Prince Crown Prince Hassan of Jordan. I said, wow. And then it goes through all of this stuff, trying to explain why he has all of the, the right uh, qualifications to be the Antichrist and all of the evidences, trying to go into his background, where he was born, his ethnicity, and all of that. And, and I basically, well, when, I got <coughs> when I got Dad sitting on the phone and he asked me about the book, I said, it, it's garbage. This is rubbish. That none of this is right. I said, just don't, don't, even, don't, don't even bother. Don't even, you don't even have to refute this in your teaching. Just, it's nothing at all. There's nothing to this. Well, listen, nobody knows who the Antichrist is because according to verse number 8, he cannot be revealed until the restrainer is removed. His identity can't be revealed as long as the church is here. So you say, well, when then will that occur? Well, that goes with the next question. Is there a sequence of events for the last days? There is. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse number 3. Don't let anybody deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there is a falling away. The Greek word there is apostasy. Apostasy means to remove yourself from truth. I don't think there's anybody who doubts that in America we're living in a time of apostasy. Now you've got paganism across Africa. You certainly have, have had apostasy beginning and continuing in Europe and other places. But in my observations of the church in America right now, Episcopalian Church, United Church of Christ, Methodist Church, Presbyterian Church, Lutheran churches, and a host of others. They have certainly turned away from their original foundation 
and have embraced doctrines and teachings that are entirely unscriptural to the point that you can't even identify who they are in, accor in accordance with the scripture. But I've also noticed in my travels that even now in the full gospel churches, Pentecostal churches, four square churches, Assembly of God churches, Pentecostal Church of God, Church of God in Christ, independent churches. There's been a, a, an apathy that's set in so that you have a lot of people falling away from truth. Well, Joel prophesied in the last days there'd be an outpouring of the Spirit. Peter said on the day of Pentecost, this outpouring, this baptism of the Holy Spirit is, is for you and for as many as the Lord our God shall call and is promised to many that are far away. So that means this thing is going to continue right up to the end. It doesn't matter if nobody in Hebron ever gets the baptism of the Holy Spirit again. There will be people being filled with the Holy Spirit all around the earth. It doesn't matter if no one else has ever saved it all in Thayer County. I can promise you there are going to be people saved on planet Earth. If nobody is ever healed again by the power of God in South Central Nebraska, I can promise you somewhere on this earth there are going to be people filled with the Holy Spirit but concurrent with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the move of God is going to be this falling away. So as God is reviving things on one half, on the other side, there's going to be a falling away. And all of that is preparatory for the appearance of the man of sin. Because the mystery of iniquity is already working. That's why the falling away is taking place. So at some point in the midst of the backsliding and the apostasy, there's going to be a sound. The trump of God is going to sound. And then suddenly the dead in Christ are going to arise. And then folks are going to be called away and go to heaven. Can you imagine that? I mean, I'm going to be in somebody's kitchen and I'm going to be eating up all of their food. And then suddenly that sound is going to be made and I'm going to disappear. And I mean, the folks at the table are still going to be eating. I'm not going to call any names. I just hope it's not any of you, okay? I just hope it's not any of you. I hope you're leaving with me. I'm catching the first train out of here. So we, we disappear. We go to heaven. Let me, let me speed this up. We, we go to heaven, and, and then when we're with the Lord, it's at that point the Father is holding the book. The book has seven seals. Jesus walks over to the Father because he's the lamb that has prevailed. The only one worthy to open the book. He takes the book. He opens up the first seal. The Antichrist is revealed. White horse rider. That's what the scripture says. He's going to gallop through the earth. The second, second seal is open. It's going to be war because the red horse is going to gallop throughout the earth. And, and that is when you're going to see a lot of Ezekiel 38 and 39 come to pass. And Russia and her allies are surely going to make their way into Israel. I can promise you that. Russia and Persia and Ethiopia and Libya are going to be together in the end times. Now, it doesn't matter what anybody in the government says, but I can promise you this. It has always surprised our State Department that with all the things we've done to undermine the Russian-Iranian relationship, it has remained intact in the last century because it's prophesied in Ezekiel 31 in the first five verses. It's not going to change. He's going to open the third seal. You're going to have that, that, that black horse. There's going to be famine, shortages of food. If you've got wars taking place, you're going to have hungry people. You're going to have people standing in line to receive government cheese and everything else. There are going to be some hungry people out here. And the scripture 
is very plain that when the fourth seal is open, there's going to be a pale horse rider who will gallop through the earth and will have power to affect one quarter of the earth. One quarter. Death and hell rides with it. Now imagine that. A quarter of the earth, people, that is a lot of geographical terrain. And the scripture says power is given over the wild beasts. Now, Jesus fasted and prayed 40 days, 40 nights there in the wilderness. And the scripture says he was with the wild beast. That's Mark chapter 1. Wild beast never attacked him. Now, we hear occasionally of somebody running in California and then a mountain lion runs out. Now, see, if you were smart, you were like Loretta when she lived over there. You just didn't run out there. You see? And you hear sometimes of people walking through the woods of Wyoming or Colorado or somewhere, wherever there are bears, and then there's a mauling that takes place. But can you imagine what happens during that tribulation period when all of this stuff breaks out and wild animals are attacking people here, there, and everywhere? That's, that's with the opening of the seals. He opens the fifth seal. He sees an altar under the altar. He sees the souls of many people that die during the tribulation period. You say, why are there going to be so many people dying? Because the Antichrist... At some point during the tribulation, towards the middle part, he's going to tell everybody who wants to continue to buy and trade and purchase goods, they've got to have a tattoo or a mark or some kind of number of the name of the beast on their body. And without it, no transactions are going to be taking place. And so there'll be people standing in line, getting it here maybe, here, somewhere. They're going to get it. Now, I know that. Because the Bible says there are a lot of people who will refuse to take that mark. And a multitude of them are going to be gathered in heaven. And the scripture says the Lord himself is going to feed them now. Those who were thirsty and hungry and couldn't get any food during the tribulation period, they're going to make it to heaven. So during the tribulation period, there will be people who are probably going to starve to death rather than take that mark. Even when there won't be people that will turn around and give them food or help them. And when Jesus opens that seventh seal, that starts the seven trumpets being blown. But there is good news because there will be people saved during the tribulation. Revelation 7, 144,000 Jewish men, virgins, undefiled. You know they witness to people. Because Revelation 14, the first couple of verses say there's a massive group of people that are there on a mountain with 144,000. That's their harvest. Revelation 11 said there'll be two witnesses. We don't know who they are. People guess all the time, but the Bible doesn't tell us any names of who they are. It says they'll have power to call down fire. They'll be able to shut up the heavens so it probably won't rain. There'll be the ones that'll be pointing to the Antichrist, saying to him over and over again, you've got 232 days before the Lord comes back and stomps you into the ground. The Bible says at some point, three and a half days before the final end of the tribulation period, they are overcome by that beast system. Their bodies lay dead in the streets. The people won't even bury them. It says they're clapping and rejoicing, giving gifts to one another like it's Christmas. All of this is taking place out in the open as their bodies lay there. But amazingly, the bodies are not deteriorating. Nope. So you better believe the news agencies will be there filming a lot of that. Because the scripture says that that last day, the Spirit of God re-enters the two witnesses. 
from death. They're resurrected. They stand up on their feet. A voice cries out from heaven, come up here. The two are catapulted straight on up into heaven, raptured by the power of God. And the people see that. And the scripture says, many turn to the Lord and fear him because of that event right there. And then Revelation 14 as an angel preaching the everlasting gospel through the heaven. Now, folks, I'll be honest. There are a lot of people that I enjoy listening to teach and minister. I'm telling you, I get in the car sometimes, and I even listen to myself by CD. I know how that preacher lives. I listen to myself. I say, oh, I say, go ahead, preacher. You're doing good on that one. There. Wow. Yes, give it to him. Give it to him. But can you imagine an angel preaching the gospel? Wow. Two verses later, in Revelation 14, it says there'll be another angel going throughout the heavens, screaming at people, saying, do not take the mark of the beast. Whoever takes the mark of the beast seals their doom in the lake of fire with the Antichrist and the false prophet. And then finally, in Revelation 15, 1 and 2, it tells you there's a multitude of people that listen to what the angels were saying, and they refuse to take that mark. Now, even though that's good news, and the Bible says that's going to happen. I don't want to be here when these things are occurring. Scripture says in Luke, blessed are those that are counted worthy to escape these things. Some people say, well, you've got an escape theology. You just want to fly and eat pie in the sky. I said, you're right. You're right. If I can be an escape artist and get out of all of that, I want out as soon as I can. And I'll... I'll catch the reruns later when everybody's telling me about it after they get there. But I, I want to be there in the presence of the Lord. And when the first boatload of people are getting out of here, I want to be right there at the front of the line. I want to be one of the ones that are there when the saints go marching in. Yeah. I want to be a part of that number. Let's all stand. I hope and pray that when you think about the last days, and you think about us, our gathering, the Lord placing us here for this particular season. The success of this church, or the lack of success of this church, has nothing to do with how many or how few come to this church. It has everything to do with how we honor God's word in these last days how we interpret our role in the last days. Are we going to be some of the ones that are helping rebuild David's tabernacle? Or are we going to be like some people? That when the rapture takes place and the church is gone, the following Sunday they'll be able to go on with their service as if nothing has happened. Folks, that'll be heartbreaking because I'm telling you, across this nation and around the world, there'll be millions of people that'll do that. They'll have no explanation for why saints have disappeared any more than they had an explanation for why the grave was empty when Jesus Christ was resurrected. And they had to bribe the soldiers to say, his disciples stole the body. So what is it in these last days? What kind of a heart do we want to have for God? Let's be right with God because God is right with us. Let's just lift our hands and worship the Lord for a few moments. Oh, God, we love you. We appreciate you. We thank you, God, for speaking to our hearts through the word of the Lord. We, we have heard, God, and we know that we are living in very important times, God. This is a very important season, 
in the body of Christ. We need to do what we can to be effective witnesses to our community in this state. Father, we pray that you give us leaders and politicians and people that also will further the advancement of the kingdom of God and the building of the tabernacle of David around the earth, that the kingdom of God would expand and the cross would be planted in the hearts of people, that your son might take a name out amongst the nations of the world as his gospel is preached, Lord. So, Father, thank you tonight for your word and for speaking so clearly to us. We worship you in Jesus' mighty name.